Hey everyone, you're listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast with Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. Let's go. Hello everyone, Happy New Year and a warm welcome back to the podcast. I am genuinely excited to have you tuning in. Sharing in this journey of discovery and learning, I I think my mission here is to deliver engaging conversations with fascinating guests, all aimed at leaving you with, I hope, valuable insights for your professional life. Whether you're in the classroom, sharing ideas with colleagues, or just seeking inspiration, I hope there's something here for everyone. Now, as I am stepping into 2024, I will continue my role as an assessment lead in my building, and I'm eager to share my experiences and insights with all of you. My path in assessment reform has been long and enriching, and many of you might already be be familiar with my work through my blog, through Beyond Report Cards on Facebook, various workshops and presentations, the BC Assessment Consortium. I've been part of so many vibrant educational communities, and even though some groups have disbanded, the connections and conversations have profoundly shaped my journey, and I'm so grateful for those connections. Now, I seem to have a reputation for not being afraid of sharing my voice and my point of view. But the fact is, up until about two years ago, I only leaned toward those folks who were already leaning in with regards to assessment reform. Who signs up for the workshop I'm giving? Those who are already leaning in. Who reads my blog? Those who are already leaning in. Who's listening to me on a podcast or a roundtable? Those who are already leaning in. I was, and I'm, I'm still partly, afraid to lean in and towards those who are either standing still, leaning away, or armoring up against assessment reform. Now, I actually thought that the reason I should roll with a nomination for a Prime Minister's Teaching Award was to find more of my voice. In other words, I actually told myself, okay, if I happen to win, then I'll feel ballsy enough to start addressing my desire for more equitable and inclusive assessment practices, you know, like at a district level, right? So as many of you know, I did win, and it wasn't long after that I started addressing my concerns to the higher-ups at the district level, and I was thrilled. They listened. But here's the thing, I didn't need the Prime Minister's Award to do that. I just didn't have the guts, I didn't have the drive, and I didn't really have the tactics. Like, I just didn't know how to do it. I realized that I was expecting way too much from the folks who wanted nothing to do with assessment reform. And I was making it worse because I was leaning away from them. Now, listen, I, I don't want anyone to get me wrong. I am thrilled that I won a Prime Minister's Teaching Award and to be recognized for my work. And I am so grateful to the individuals who wrote my recommendation letters and spoke so highly of me. These are my people. Uh, I mean, I remember reading these letters and I was bawling. Like just, it just, it felt so good because I, I have been working really hard and I recognize that. And I'm really proud of myself for winning that award. But I just need to make sure you all know that you don't need to wait. In fact, you shouldn't wait to put yourself out there. You just need to do it. 
There is no time like the present and resting on whatever situation is currently blocking you from setting up a meeting with someone in authority at the district level or even like with your school principal is just another excuse not to do it. My journey took a significant turn when I approached my admin and district leaders about embracing the complexities of assessment reform, right? Particularly in light of our new reporting order requirements here in British Columbia. The COVID-19 pandemic, you know, with all its challenges brought to light, the stark inequities in our traditional assessment systems, it was a critical moment to rethink and reshape how we assess and grade our students. Real change requires collective effort. It's not about immediate consensus, but creating a space where teachers can explore and engage with new ideas. I have this role as an assessment lead in my district because I challenged myself to engage engage in hard conversations at a district level. Now in my role, I have dedicated time to support teachers in rethinking their assessment practices. It's about being a mentor, an ally, guiding teachers in my building through the uncertainties of change and together with a fantastic team of educators in every high school in my district, we're championing this shift, encouraging risk-taking and embracing the nuances of modifying assessment practices. However, this transformation is challenging, right? Changing long-established practices isn't easy, But I'm telling you, man, in this role, it's gratifying to see educators exploring new ways of assessing, you know, that focus on these curricular competency skills and diverse methods of demonstrating learning. They're starting to see how they can actually build more inclusion to their classroom. I've seen shifts in my building I never thought I would see in my career. And there's more to come. There's more conversations to be had. There's more moves to make. In fact, I'm going to make a move right here, right now on this podcast. As we move forward, I have a special 2024 message and it's actually not just for teachers. Like I want teachers to get out there and have conversations, but I have a message for administrators and district superintendents and anyone in the, in higher up power position who wants change wants teachers to engage in assessment reform. Embracing change and reform in assessment practices is crucial, but it can't happen in isolation. Educators need support and time, and time carved out within the school day for collaboration and learning. You put educators in a room together and you give them time, magic happens. I'm really fortunate that in my district, we have dedicated time for this, right? We get to meet, we can meet for an hour every week if we want to. But it's not like that in all districts and districts need to find a way to alleviate the load on teachers, right? I mean, moving beyond just, you know, having the pro-D days, right? Where, you know... Teachers, you know, choose to go to a pro D or not, carve out the time and bring it up as a discussion. But teachers have a lot on their plates. Some are burning out. There is a lot. We need to alleviate the load on teachers to make room for discussion and for assessment reform. One of my assessment heroes is Tom Schimmer. And I'm so thrilled to share my recent conversation with him. He is a leading voice in assessment reform and the author of Redefining Student Accountability, a proactive approach to teaching behavior outside the gradebook. His insights on trauma-informed practice and embracing the complexities of assessment reform are incredibly enlightening and I am confident you'll find our discussion both thought-provoking and inspiring. You'll be ready to take a leap yourself. I hope you enjoy my interview with Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the Embrace the Messy podcast. 
Uh, thanks, Shannon. Good to be with you today. Looking forward Thank to it. So, so, yeah, so am I. So before we get going, uh, taking a look, having a look, uh, going through some questions here, I just wanted to say, you know, it was really um, such a such a wonderful experience last year. So summer of 2022, got to meet you face to face with a few of my assessment peeps. But I got to tell you, Tom, you know, I left that meeting. I couldn't help but think about how I'm like, you know, here's this this guy, you know, he travels more than 200 days a year <laughs> talking about assessment. Yeah. And, you know, we're sitting outside enjoying some wine, having some appetizers. And what do these people want to talk about? Assessment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. I'm like, here's your day off. And all we wanted to do was talk about assessment. But anyway, you were Aww. you were so gracious. And yeah. it was actually that conversation was really impactful for me personally, because it just helped me with, you know, sometimes we can kind of lose the momentum on this journey. Yeah. So that conversation uh, really helped jumpstart me and got me going. So well, that, that. it was it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, um, I'm just a dude who likes to drink wine and, and have a good time as well. So and I don't mind talking shop. I mean, I, I love the work, um, yeah. obviously. And uh, so anytime I have a chance to talk uh, shop, uh, I'm good with it. So it was it was a great night. Got to meet your daughter. Um, yeah. She was very impressive as well. And, and certainly a fun time to get together with everybody. So I really enjoyed it. So. The reason why I asked you to come on the podcast, Tom, is to talk about your latest book, Redefining Student Accountability. And right. it's such a great book. And right. like listeners already know, you know, I run the Beyond Report Cards Facebook group and we just use that as for our book club. And everyone involved in the book club really, really enjoyed it. Thought it was, you know, I think I told you this in the book club. It was the book that we've been waiting for someone to write. Right. You know, as right. a jumping off point. So you emphasize in the book that grades should never be used to teach behavior. Right. And that's, of course, you know, all those standard things that seem, it doesn't seem like rocket science. Like it doesn't seem like it's anything novel or new, you know, just don't you, you know, separate behavior from grades. But what are the big ideas in your book that, you know, if you wanted to kind of give that view from like 30,000 feet, what is, what else is the book about? Here's the easy part. The easy part is for all of us to go around telling people to stop penalizing, stop using zeros, stop doing that. But the fair question for teachers to ask is, what do I do instead? And I think for a lot of years, there weren't a lot of answers to that question, which was just don't distort achievement, stop penalizing. But in fairness, when a teacher asks the question, um, well, what do I do then if a student hasn't handed something in? How do I hold them accountable? How do I, because I think that's one of the big misunderstandings in the work that that we do, Shannon, is, is that people think that, and, and we don't help ourselves by the way we sometimes message. We don't think that kids should be held accountable. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I tell groups all the time, it's not okay that kids miss deadlines. It really isn't. We need to teach them about responsibility, especially high school kids. They need to learn about responsibility and accountability, but it's equally not okay to distort their achievement levels as a result of the lateness or the misbehavior. So that's the tension. And that's why I wrote the book is because uh -huh. teachers are looking for an answer of what to do instead. I think more and more now, in I'd say in 2023 versus 2013 versus 2003, I think more than ever, teachers understand the need to not do that. But if we can't give them an answer, for what to do instead, then that's really not fair. So I wrote the chapter in the book, Grading from the Inside Out, called Redefining Accountability, and saw that over the years, this just continued to be the point of tension where a lot of high schools, middle schools, junior highs were really struggling with what to do instead. And so the, the overarching theme of the book is basically, you don't need your grade book. This is not how we teach. This It's not teaching when we penalize someone. It, that's not instruction. You know, I've often said to people, if we were to take the approach that we take with behavior to academics, it would sound something like this. I'm going to teach you math by penalizing your inability to do math. Like that doesn't make any sense to anybody. And yet when it's behavioral, we sort of say, I'm going to teach you how to be responsible by punishing your irresponsibility. It doesn't make any sense. And so the whole idea is to be proactive, to teach kids responsibility, because where we all agree is that kids need to leave high school with some habits of learning, some a profile of a learner, whatever the language is. They need to feel as if they've got competence over those skills. 
where we differ sometimes is how we go about that work. And so that's what the book is about is basically just trying to help people understand that you can do this without your grade book. You don't need to distort achievement levels as a result of lateness, but you can hold them accountable. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad that you, that's the way you framed the book. And I think what I appreciate about the book a lot is the fact that you back it up with, there's a lot of research. There are also some, you know, really tangible exercises. And one of the other things that it reminds me of is I'm kind of held to this idea when I think about like atomic habits, James Clear's book, you know, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the fall level to the, I'm, I'm yeah, we fall to the level of our systems. Yeah. And so we have to have system change, right? Yeah. If we just set a goal, it's going to wind up becoming like if we have some kind of a mission statement where every student will be held accountable um, for their learning, it winds up becoming like a pass the buck kind of situation and somebody else's problem. While if we don't actually reform the system, you know, setting the norms, getting real about them, building criteria, and then committing to action in terms of who's responsible for what, it's all going to go, it's all going to be mute, right? We need to make sure that we actually have a system change. Would you agree? I totally agree. The um, the thing, I mean, I've, I've said this probably for 15 years and uh, it's things I've learned over the, over the, over time. And that is this um, mantra, if you will, is that effective practices are only as good as the systems we put in place to sustain mm -hmm. those practices. So the, the way I would make the distinction is that a, that practices are what we do as students, right? Systems okay. are put in place for the adults. Systems create predictability and they help everyone understand how support is accessed, what, what the systems are, what the routines are, what's next, how do, we, how do we go about the business? So I would say it this way, effective practices, things like no zeros, no penalties, will only be as good as the systems that are put in place to support the teachers using those practices. So in leadership, especially principals and vice principals and, and even teacher leaders, we have to be thinking about what routines or systems will sustain the use of this practice, not in September, in February, in March, when things get tough. That's uh -huh. where you lean on your systems is that you create predictability around, you know, when do I refer this to the office? Who makes the first phone call uh -huh. home? How do we follow up on that? Those are all systems questions and that those ideas need to be looked at. And then of course, as you zoom out, you think about the larger system, which is again, but the, the systems are the people who work in the system, right? A lot of times mm -hmm. we in education will say, well, until the system changes, we refer, we refer to the system as if it's some inanimate object that we mm -hmm. sit outside of. The system is the people working inside the system. So we are the system and we can start with now, Granted, we don't have control over the Ministry of Education. We don't have control over a lot of things, but we do have control over what happens in our classrooms and then what happens in our schools. So those are the things we want to focus on. Systems create predictability for the adults. And that way, no one's wondering what's next should something occur. Yeah. And then folks are just automatically assuming that, you know, every classroom, we don't want things to be different in everybody in each different classroom, right? One right. teacher might be able to navigate some behavior problems in their classroom and have no issues while another teacher, their breaking point might be after a, a kid does so many things and they're automatically just firing down to the office, you know, and it's one of the big issues I'm hearing from educators I work with is, where's the line and how do we actually decide that as a group? And I'm like, well, that you're answering your own question. You know, we actually need to sit down and decide that as a group. Now, the other thing that you put in your book is you organize it by, you know, you talk about like tier one interventions versus say, tier two and tier three. So right. tier one is that in, is that entire staff that is that core prevention idea. Why? And tier two is, of course, more individual or personal supports. Right. How do you how would you explain that to someone who doesn't know what you're talking about? If we're talking when we actually bring that up, the difference between tier one, two and three. OK, so so tier one uh, and, and this is to just take a step back. What I often tell people is that in order to address this issue of accountability, late work, missing work, all that, you are going to have to put systems in place that are not going to work for the students you're thinking of. And the reason is that some of our students have very challenging home environments. They have very unpredictable uh, support at home. They have other personal struggles, et cetera. But here's the deal. We have to create a context or an environment that, that 
kind of steadies the environment so we have the time to go deeper with those students who need it. So when we talk about tier one, we talk about tier one as people forget that the most efficient and effective tier of intervention is prevention. So tier one is about prevention. It's about making sure that we use sound assessment practices, sound feedback practices, sound grading practices, good instructional design that we pre-teach on the behavioral side that we teach and make clear what the expectations are, what are our social norms and what does that look like and how we make sure that students understand the context of that. So what does it mean to be respectful in the cafeteria? What does it mean? So we use context to kind of teach those expectations. You can predict that that will work for about 80 to 90% of your students. You're going to have a small group of students who, who, who emerge as being unresponsive to that tier because of this principle. The intensity of any intervention has to match the intensity of the presenting need. If the intensity of the intervention doesn't match, the intervention will fail. That's why the success rate at tier one, the threshold of success is 80%. If we can get 80% or more of our students kind of on board, in line, aligned pro-socially, that tells us that our tier one has been effective. Notice it's not 100% though, right? Uh -huh. That tells us at 20%. So it helps us distribute our minutes. So if we get 80 or more percent of our students, we say tier one's working, direct your attention to tier two and the 20% remaining. Now tier two tends to be targeted. It's bas basically it's targeted to what the needs are and it's typically group-based. It's not group-based because it needs to be a group. It's group-based because we put kids together who have similar needs because a group-based mm -hmm. delivery model is more efficient, right? Each tier is subsequently more labor-intensive. So as you move through the tiers, tier three is individualized support. Basically, tier two is we have a system that we fit the students into. Tier three is we build the system of support for the individual. So it's much more labor intensive, right? So tier one is whole school class-wide. Tier two is targeted group-based intervention. Again, not group-based because it has to be grouped. It's grouped because they have similar needs. And then tier three is individualized intensive support. So each tier is more labor intensive. So it's in our best interest to maximize the impact of each tier, because if we can turn tier one into 90%, then that'll have a ripple effect through the other tiers. Imagine mm -hmm. if our tier, tier three, instead of being 5%, we're 2% of our population. It's the same schools, same amount of time, same expertise, same available space, same budget. But now we only have to individualize for 2% of our population, which we have the time for, and we can go deeper. So the tiers are very important because nothing works for everyone. And we have to make sure that people understand that we are going to put systems in place that are not going to work for those high flyers, frequent flyers, the ones who really have those challenges. But we're going to be able to clear some space so we can go deeper with them. Yeah, I think a staff gets together and actually collaborates on what are the issues, what are the problems that we're having? Because school A might have different problems yeah. than school B. So it's going to look different, which is why you don't go about, you might give an example of what tier one, two, and three interventions are going to look like as, as well as the problems that are aligned with them. But it's going to change from school to school. Bringing teachers into that conversation is hugely important because if it's simply just top-down initiatives, mm -hmm. teachers are going to feel like they're left out of the conversations. Well, who are you to decide, administration, what are the problems in the school and this is what we're seeing? Are you suggesting that then it becomes like, say, part of a staff meeting or something like that where we actually collaborate and discuss, you know, sure. here are the issues and then what can we all agree on can be put in place? There has to be some shared responsibility, right? Um, I agree. Uh, you know, in the schools I worked in as an employee, when we talked about our systems, we often did some trade-offs, right? So in the book, I talk about the can't-dos versus the didn't-dos. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, because some students need longer to learn, you best expect some can't-dos. So we have to realize that there are some students not completing their assignments or late with their work because they can't do it. And then there's the didn't-dos. And so in the schools I worked in, we made some trade-offs. We said, teachers, if you handle the can't-dos, we will manage the didn't-dos, and we'll put a system in place that allows you to have some support for that. So there are trade-offs. We have to have conversations about what are our social norms. There are things that administration can do to create systems. Then the teacher's feedback on that is how sustainable is it, how efficient is the system. And then on the other hand, uh, there can be some expectations in the other direction about 
you know, there's always the extremes, right? Top down or bottom up. Um, the idea that everything gets sent to the office or nothing gets sent to the office. Uh -huh. And those two extremes are not helpful. The, the, the way that we create school climate and the way that we handle school discipline, if you will. And again, I don't, you know, that word discipline is an interesting one because early in my career, I would have thought when I used the word discipline, it was very much synonymous with removal and isolation. And what I, one of my top five lessons in my career was when I use the word discipline now, the default for me is, is inclusion and structure and support. It's inclusion parameters, right? So it's not removal and isolation. It's inclusion and it's predictability, it's structure. Discipline for me now means helping the student learn to be disciplined mm -hmm. as opposed to disciplining them. It's not something we do to them. It's something we try to help them become. And that yeah. that shift for me really changed a couple of things. It, it allowed me actually to be tougher on students. And yet my relationships with my students in the schools I worked in were significantly improved because it wasn't about an us versus them. It wasn't about, it was about expectations and about excellence and about believing in students, believing that they could become disciplined. So that shared responsibility, the shared conversation uh, about what is sustainable from the office's perspective, what is sustainable from the teacher's perspective, and we find a system that works in our school, given the norms that we have. And that's why I don't give like, this is how you do it. I often right. speak from a mindset perspective, because it's like, this is the thinking, what works with your schedule, what works with your staffing, what works with the parameters and structures, what works with your policies, your state policies, your provincial mm -hmm. policies, all of those things. So we have to have some shared responsibility for sure. Yeah, it sounds a lot like when I think about like the UDL framework and, mm -hmm. you know, teaching kids to self-regulate that we actually mm -hmm. purposefully and intentionally teach kids actually how to manage or, you know, facilitate the discipline processes that are in place, right? Yeah, that, yeah. you know, these are the things that are, are coming to place. Are there any, <laughs> this might be an interesting question, uh, pros and cons to including educator teachers in the design of the tier one, two, and three framework? Well, I, I mean, there's always, again, there's always the caricature and the extreme or the cynicism, right? And you can you can manufacture that for principals and you can manufacture that for teachers, right? right? It's the caricature of the teacher would be the teacher that doesn't want to handle any behavioral issues and wants to send everything to the office and doesn't believe that, that kind of believes they're above dealing with behavior. Uh -huh. that's very few people, right? That's a caricature, uh -huh. just like administration, where we create a caricature that administration is out of touch with what's happening in the school. They don't know what's going on. They have no idea. They don't want to support the teachers. Kids just get sent to the office and they get a lollipop and they go back to class. I mean, I know that exists out there on both sides, that, but, but that's not the majority. The majority of, uh, I don't really see a downside to being inclusive. I think where things get more effective is when there is trust between administration and teachers, right? Because then when the administrators say, listen, this isn't, we can't support that, or this isn't sustainable, then the teachers will hear that and say, you know, I trust these people, I, or the principal, I trust this person, and I really believe what they say. And likewise, when the teachers say, you know, I don't think we can sustain this. This isn't going to work for us. This is really hard for us to, to do. Because a lot of times good ideas may not be able to manifest in execution because they just aren't efficient, right? And then the administrators will look at that and say, well, we have a really great relationship with our teachers. We really trust them. Um, so we believe them. If, if there isn't trust, then both sides of that equation will see what the other is saying through a bit of a cynical lens. Like, oh yeah, they just trying to pass the buck. Oh, the administration doesn't want to have to deal with it. They just want to make it our problem. And I think the first thing you have to have is that trusting relationship that works both ways. When you have that, then I think when a principal stands up and say, you know, it's really hard for us to support this, or it's not sustainable, or we don't have the money for this, people will believe them. And then when the teachers say, we can't sustain this, it's really not efficient. It, it's an awkward, it's clunky then the principal says, okay, well, let's fix it because they, they, there's trust on both sides of that conversation. So I don't really see a downside. The downside, okay. I think, would emerge when there isn't that trusting relationship between administration okay. and teachers. Yeah. So you, in the book to you, there's a real intentionality in terms of if we want appropriate behaviors in the classroom, we have to teach it. We can't just right. expect it to, to magically happen. But right. there's a lot on educators' plates, like 
teachers are going to say, okay, we've established these tier one interventions. Here are the expectations. This is what we have to be able to to do in our classrooms and manage this. Mm. Meanwhile, you know, like in BC, we've got the new reporting order and we've got all this stuff and we feel like, you know, like our human ping pong ball kind of going back and forth. There's only so much that we can actually do in the staff room. How are you able to convince educators? I mean, you've convinced me, you know that I drink the Kool-Aid, right? But how do you convince educators moving from this is what you, because I sympathize with that, right? Again, that the idea that we have so much on our plates, how do you move them from, okay, yes, I get that, Tom, we should do this. How do you tell teachers, this is what you can do. You, you can do it. You know, how do you pump them up to make sure they realize that this is something that will benefit their classrooms and you can do it without sacrificing what, you know, any more energy that you, you know, things that you don't want to lose. Well, there's a couple of things. One is that you are going to deal with student behavior. The question is whether you want to deal with it proactively or reactively, because I can tell you that people say, oh, I don't have time to, to deal with behavior. As soon as the t- student tells you to F off, you'll have time to deal with that student's behavior. Uh, you're not going to let that go. So either we deal with behavior or we don't. And if we don't, if we don't want to deal with behavior, then ignore the late work and don't don't handle it that way. But of course, that's not true, right? So right. we tend to... We tend to say, well, we don't want to do it proactively, but when someone misbehaves, we definitely give it our attention. But, you know, being proactive is more efficient. So it's actually a better use of your minutes to be proactive. The other part is, I think we too often think that it has to be epic. It could be something very subtle and very simple. For example, I introduce a big project to my class. We've got a two-week project or a three-week project we're doing. We're taking a deep dive on some topics and we're going for it. Now, before I turn the students loose, what if I turn to one of my students who I know always meets deadlines and always is very organized? And I say, Shannon, now question, you see what I did there? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I, I turn to Shannon and I say, Shannon, uh, before we get started, Shannon, when you get a big project like this, how do you plan your time? Like, what do you do to organize yourself so that you can meet the deadline? You know, the project's due in three weeks. What's your process? I know Shannon meets the deadline every time. I want her to say it out loud. And she says, well, you know, I look at my calendar and I realize that the project's due in three weeks, but I don't really have three weeks because I have volleyball tournaments each weekend. My grandparents are coming to visit. So when I add up the number of days I actually have realistically to do this project, I have six days to do it. And three of them are this week. I better get started. And then I, as the teacher, just say, okay, everybody, let's map out the next three weeks. What have you got going on? Be realistic. Are you going to work on it on Saturday when you've got the big family wedding to go to? No, you're not. So cross that off. (laughs) So what we're doing is organically teaching them how to take a big project, chunk it into smaller pieces, and help them be organized. Or it's the English teacher that says, I want to see your introductory paragraphs by Friday. Now, if... Tom doesn't have his introductory paragraph done by Friday, then his teacher has two weeks to do something about it, even though I'm falling behind. So you can set soft deadlines. You can help students learn to pace the work. Where the interventions get a little more intense is when students emerge from that. That's tier one. We're Mm -hmm. teaching everybody how to be organized. So I, I just think it's a fallacy that Because I think what happens is sometimes teachers think automatically that we have to have a binder and we have to have lesson plans. And we are highly educated, functioning professionals. We all know what it means to be organized. You can't be a teacher without being organized. So there's no way that no teachers can't say, well, I don't know how to teach kids how to be organized in advance of a deadline. That's just baloney because we all have to do it. We all have report card deadlines and we all have things that we have to do. So we're all functioning adults. And just those simple little lessons in real time could probably help the majority of students. I mean, when we do that type of stuff, I would always ask people, who's that going to work for? It's going to work for about 80 to 90% of your students. There's still going to be students who are unresponsive, meaning it's not intense enough for their situation to help them meet the deadline. But we can do some things a little bit on a smaller scale. It doesn't always have to be so epic. We don't need a shrink wrap binder. We don't need a program. We just need to go about the business of giving it some purpose and intentionality. So I think that we're always going to deal with student behavior because 
teaching is a human endeavor and so is learning. It's a human interaction. So students' behaviors are a part of what we have to deal with. And, and I know that some people don't like to talk about classroom management, but you know, it's kind of one of those things that people seem to be out of vogue, but I don't get it because we do manage our classrooms. We create the environment of learning. I know it's just passe, right? People are like, I, I know, don't, right? Oh. We always use air quotes on things. Like, yeah. I don't manage my classroom. I'm like, yes, you do. Manage your classroom. You create an incredible environment for kids to learn. That's very intentional. And you manage the norms about how we act, how we behave, how we interact with one another. How do I act? How, do, how can I go to the bathroom? Like all the social habits that we help kids understand that are pro-social, we teach them. No student is born with knowing how to raise their hand. That's not how little children, infants, get their attention from adults. They cry, they scream, they yell. Uh -huh. We teach them that raising your hand is a pro-social way to access attention from an adult in school. And so all of those things can be taught. And by doing so on a smaller scale, a more organic scale, you're going to solve the majority of issues that you're having to deal with. Yeah, it's a small sacrifice of time to yeah. actually kind of take a step back and include, you know, getting kids to, you know, get together and collaborate on, you know, brainstorm the ways in which we manage this. The other one is too, is it makes me think about what you just said about the fact it is it is up to us to model this appropriate behavior for our students and that's something that we can do when we actually talk about our own calendars we can talk about you know okay i have this amount of marking and i've got you know a staff meeting and i've got a podcast interview and i've got this and this is what i'm doing with my my time in order to be able to do that now i want to come back to the idea of an epic um way of doing it there are purposeful opportunities depending on yeah. what you teach correct like as a for example as an english and drama teacher it's mm -hmm. gold right because right. kids can discuss it and you know it's still it kind of reminds me about when you talk about like maslow through bloom right that yeah. we can be actually covering you know the standards and also talking about behavior we can write about behavior we can have debates about behavior i can get my drama kids to do skits about different behaviors and meantime they're working on it so there are those opportunities but in a class and i think you asked one of the questions i had prepared for this is thinking about classes like biology 11 or you know a p class and just taking you know 5 10 15 minutes of a class and actually coming together and talk about that right yeah, we did that at one of the high schools I worked in in Penticton. We had a Monday morning mini lesson. Uh, it was 10 minutes. And because the blocks rotated, we never hit the same class every Monday. And we just, you know, we produced some some mini lessons. And they were really not lessons. They were more discussion questions about, you know, let's talk about some of our social norms, about what it means to be responsible and and uh, and and respectful and and what it meant to sort of act in these in these pro-social ways you can do it on a on a very formal it doesn't have to be epic but it can be formal and i like yeah. the idea of taking the time to do so again you know there, there is this it you know and i say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek with a little smirk and listeners can't really see that but sometimes people say to me well you know tom we teach more than just the curriculum we teach these kids life skills and then i say okay well let's teach them life skills oh no we don't have time to teach them life yeah, skills. right yeah covering the curriculum we can't have it both ways you can't just yeah. conveniently say well we teach them life skills so whenever i'm annoyed I get to apply a penalty or I get to intervene in a, in a reprimand. But if it's proactive, I don't have time for that. That seems somewhat convenient um, mm -hmm. and somewhat protective of the ability to, I, again, that's not the majority of teachers by any means, but it's enough to notice that mm -hmm. we sometimes have this sort of, we talk out of both sides of our mouths. We tell, we we want to say that we teach more than just the curriculum. And I would say, okay, well, let's teach these kids life skills. Let's teach them how to be responsible. You know, again, penalizing your inability to do math doesn't teach you how to do math. And just like penalizing your inability to be responsible doesn't teach you how to be responsible. You have to teach it. So yeah. we can teach it and it does, and it doesn't take a lot. It just takes attention because bottom line, Shannon, is what adults give their attention to is what children, adolescents, will believe is important. And yeah. if we don't give it attention, then no wonder the kids dismiss it. They say, well, Tom, the kids don't take it seriously. That's because we're not taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. If we raise its profile, then the students will start, maybe not on par with academic achievement, but it'll be up there enough to notice that the students are also uh, seeing that it is something that matters. This And, and I'll finish with this. Just, I will often, and I think I wrote this in the book too, 
Um, I should know what I wrote in the book, but it's hard to remember everything. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> no there's no pop quiz, Tom, I promise. <laughs> no, but it's the idea that, um, you know, your academic achievement grades get you into university and college. It's your habits of learning that allow you to graduate from that college. And that, to me, is why they both matter. They're just different, but they both they both matter. It's not just getting into college and getting into university. It's actually graduating from that school. You have to be disciplined to go to university because you don't go to school as much. You have more homework, but you have more free time. So it's all of those things that that kids have to navigate. So I think that those skills will really actually help them as they go into, on, on to post-secondary. Do you think it's pushed to the side by some educators because they just don't know how to do it? Like, is it... Do you think it's a, it's also like a time thing, like in terms of trying to be creative and, you know, like for someone like me, no, no problem. Right. Just yeah. like I said, given my personality and and the nature of the beast, you know, to take the of, five, uh, 10 minutes. Right. I would Otherwise, say of, of the people who um, push it aside, which I, and I, I couldn't put a number to it. I don't think the majority of teachers push it aside, but of the group that pushes it aside, I think there's two things. One is, you're right, there are people that say, well, I don't really know how to do it, which is probably not true, but- they Or they just, they don't say they don't know how, but that could be just right. their coping sure. mechanism for not knowing how, right? You haven't put two and two together, right? But honestly, Shannon, there's probably a small group of people who don't want to and believe yeah. that kids should know how to behave by the time they get to grade 11 or should know how to behave appropriately by the time they get to grade nine or whatever it is. Again, is that the majority of teachers? Absolutely not. Uh, but is could it be enough to have a significant influence in a singular school? Uh, sure. Yeah, it could. And it could have an influence in a negative way. So, you know, I think being purposeful about the conversation, administration, you know, uh, creating the opportunities at faculty meetings to to have those conversations and create systems that are doable, efficient for the teachers, effective for the students. Um, that that has to be there. So I think I think there is that of the of those that push it aside. Uh, there's the I don't know how, but there's also I don't want to. And again, that could be one percent of the teachers. I don't know because it's a small group, but 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 it could it could be enough in a single school to have a, a a significant impact. So finding ways to do it in a in a more predictable way is is helpful. Shaming them so, is not the answer. We just need to oh, no, for sure. a way to, to a way forward. That's for sure. Yeah. No, no, I, I totally get that. So I want to switch gears a little bit from, you know, talking about teachers actually to talking about students now in, in behavior. And one of the things that you also put in your book is all about how we have to, relationships are a big part of this, right? In terms of, um, you know, you talked about relationships among teachers and administrators, the relationships we hold with kids. It's yeah. about, we need to connect with kids in order to foster these relationships, in order to have them trust us. You know, I'm thinking about Dr. Jody Carrington talks a lot about connection. And yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with her book. She wrote the book, you know, Kids These Days and Feeling yeah. Seen and all that. And she talks about how when we make a connection with students, we'll see dramatic changes in the behavior. You know, she also says that students can't give away what they haven't received themselves and we can't punish them into being good. You know, we see that with suspensions. You know, <laughs> one of the funny things about her book is, you know, she talks about how, you know, a, a kid who gets suspended for some kind of a behavior issue, you know, doesn't sit at home and reflect for two days on what they've done wrong. Um, we have to actually show them what to do. And, you know, to me, something like suspensions, I don't know, I think there is a time and a place, but it's it's pretty hard. I know when, you know, high schools often have these district level, you know, big five, you know, issues, like if a kid does it, and then they end up having to be, you know, sent home. What are your thoughts on the, the, the connection piece and, you know, what are some of the strategies we can use with kids to make sure we're fostering relationships that will lead to positive behavior? Yeah. You, you made me think of a couple of things there. Um, the idea of suspension, right? Um, yeah. so I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm, I'm going to get to your question, but you made me sure. think of a couple here. Going back to the three tiered framework. One of the things that that three tiered framework identifies is the irony of suspension. Now, just as a as a as a preface to what I'm about to say, we typically don't label kids tier one, tier two, and tier three no. because their needs fluctuate. You know, yeah, I, might, pathway, I might be fine. Right? Yeah, there's a pathway, right? Or, well, it's just, I could be in English language arts and I have tier ones just fine for me, but then I go to math and I need tier two supports. So needs okay. fluctuate, right? So we okay. say a student needs 
student has tier two needs. We don't label them, but I'm going to, I'm going to violate that principle here just for uh, simplicity. So okay. I just want to be clear that we don't label kids by tier, but if you think about it, suspension is a tier one approach to antisocial behavior, right? Everyone in the school could qualify for a suspension. I always sort of say it this way. If you put together the right sequence of events, you too can have three days at home, right? Yeah. There's this, you just, every student in the school, suspension is a tier one support or a tier one approach to discipline. Who gets the most suspensions? If you were to label kids by tier, which we're not supposed to do, but I'm going to do it for uh -huh. this exercise. Tier three students get yep. suspension. So think about it this yep. way. If the intensity of the intervention, tier one, doesn't match the intensity of the presenting need, tier three, the intervention will fail. And that's why schools in April and May are suspending students for the same behavioral missteps they had in October and November. And they're all, we're all sitting around wondering why it's not working. It's incredibly uh, predictable because we're uh -huh. not matching the intensity. So that that's, that's important. Relationships are always the most important tier of prevention, you know, Yeah. but I am not a, I mean, I am definitely a proponent of, of having a 360 degree relationship, knowing them and understanding them as people and all that stuff. But as you heard me say recently in my podcast, you build relationships through their learning because school is about their learning. It is also about the socialization, but I do not subscribe to the idea that, that they can't learn until I have a strong relationship with them. I'm going to build my relationship by showing them that I believe in them, that I'm going to give them all kinds of support to reach high levels of performance. I will give them feedback. I am here for their learning. When they learn to trust me, because that's where they are most vulnerable. We can be all friendly about, hey, how was your soccer game on the weekend? How was your dance? How was this? How was that? Being friendly on the periphery doesn't mean a student's going to trust you. But if I'm a struggling learner and I look you square in the eye and I say, I've got you, I'm going to make sure I'll do everything I can. You got to meet me halfway, but I'm going to do everything I can to help you make it through this class. We're going to do it together and I've got your back. When you tell a student that and they start to feel that from you, your relationship will be so strong that they're going to come to you and they're that that relationship on the periphery. So I often I know it sounds like my my grading book, but I really do believe it's sort of like think of the the core of what we do in school is their learning and it's concentric circles, right? Inside mm -hmm. out. <laughs> I use yeah. that a lot, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But it's yeah. that idea that I I'm first and foremost your teacher and and I'm I'm not your buddy. So, so I'm going to get there, but we're going to get there through your learning. I'm going to make sure that, because if, if we're all friendly, it could, students will be suspicious of that. They'd be like, well, you're all nice to me. And then you hammer me in the grade book and then you're nice to me again. Right. Like, what is that? Uh -huh. Like you say, oh, how are you? How's your sister doing? How's this? How's that? Oh, here's a zero. Oh, how's it going, buddy? Like kids are going to see through that stuff. So to me, it's start with their learning. Start by being absolutely relentlessly in pursuit of their excellence and showing them that they can trust you at every step of the way. When they don't understand something, when they're struggling, that you are there for them, that will be the most efficient route to, to trust. And then we can concentric circle that out and become the person that says, how was your weekend? How was that soccer game? Because they know they can actually believe you that your interest is authentic and it's not phony. You're not, you know, you didn't go to a seminar about building relationships. It's like, oh, how was your weekend? You know, it's, it's really, I think we have to do it more substantively and show them that we are here for them and their excellence. That's what school is all about. It's about their learning. And then from there, we connect on a deeper level when we, we sort of take an interest in their life and the things that uh -huh. they're doing. Uh, in society. So that not everybody would agree with that. And that's fine. Uh -huh. That's the way I think of it. I think you build relationships through their learning. That's why I say you Maslow through blooms. And uh -huh. that's how you end up taking care of their needs. Because the biggest source of anxiety for a lot of kids in school, it's the social situation, which we sometimes can't do a lot about because they're teenagers, especially in high school. But it's also, am I going to fail? What does uh -huh. my future look like? And if we collectively say to them, we've got you, like we will be relentless in our pursuit of your excellence, uh, then they're going to be able to lean into the learning and relax and know that the adult in their life, the adults in their life are really there for them authentically. Yeah. I, I appreciate the fact, you know, we, you know, talk is cheap and we have to match it with action. I do think there are times when the behavior or what's going on in their personal lives, we can't necessarily 
you know, incorporate the learning where we're, there are going to be times where we might actually have to have those one-on-one conversations where, and I think you, I think you put this in the book is where we actually take that time to actually talk to the student about why there are certain things, you know, why they're acting in a certain way. Like there are going to be times where we can't just kind of roll with the punches and kind of include it with whatever we're trying to teach that we actually need that one-on-one intervention where there has to be that walk and talk. And sometimes it is a little fluffy, maybe at first in order to connect with them to try to see if they can maybe reveal something that's, you know, being suppressed and we, are we trying to learn more about the student? Would you agree that there are going to be times though, that we have to, we can't yeah, just all systems or go? No, it's, and I think that would be a misunderstanding, right? Because sometimes how I handle your learning is knowing when to press pause on your learning. Right. Being yeah. aware of what's happening in your life. But that connection is still to their learning to say, listen, okay, I know things are have been a bit rough for the last couple of weeks. So let's just press pause on homework for a little while. Or let's press pause. Like we can, we can manage this. We'll get through it. Okay. But, and know that I'm, you're not going to fail because of what hap- what's happened in the last week and a half. So handling my learning also means how to navigate through those difficult situations. So make no mistake. I'm not suggesting that we just have this, you know, that we have uh, a, a lack of awareness and we're just, just relentlessly powering through the outcomes or all of that. How you handle their learning sometimes means knowing when to press pause, knowing when to help support them, helping them understand the big picture, helping them keep perspective on things, letting them know that the goal of success is still there and that you believe in them. And then this acute moment, we may have to pause for a moment, but we've got you and we see the big picture, but that's still about their learning. It's still connected Uh and showing them that this last week and a half is not going to ruin your semester. Like we've got uh-huh. you, so we'll, yeah. we'll, we got to work on some other stuff. That's fine. And I think if we can come at, come at it from that perspective, for sure. The, yeah. But again, as you're describing there, Shannon, you're describing someone who has a tier three need. So sure. this is why the tier one, tier two, and tier three needs to be ingrained in our minds, because I'm going to pursue relationships with my students through their learning. There are going to be students whose relationships with me will not emerge out of that because they'll have tier two. So I may need to small group them or individualize them in, in an artful way. We're not pulling them out in a small group and saying, I need to build a relationship with you for, <laughs> but I'm but, but I mean, like, we're just, we have to, we have to know that everything we try school-wide and class-wide is not going to work for everyone. So when you talk mm-hmm. about that one student that has, you know, the, the weekend from hell or something's mm-hmm. happened in their life, well, that's a, tier three need. And I have to be attentive to the individual. It doesn't negate the need for tier one, but it's just understanding that there will be times where we do press pause on that. Just keeping their learning in mind, because having one of the fast, I think that one of the things I learned over the years is that if you want to help somebody behaviorally, help them academically. Yeah. Because academic success and behavioral challenges engage for decades in a reciprocal relationship. Uh, there is, it's a correlation. It's not causation. It's not, you know, a teeter totter, but as academic success increases, challenging behaviors tend to decrease. You know, a lot of times when you look at the the top 10, when it comes to office discipline referrals, you're looking at your bottom 10 in terms of achievement levels. And so there is a reciprocation that happens. So every time you want to help someone behaviorally help them academically, if you want to help somebody academically include a behavioral component, whether it's uh-huh. a self monitoring, some sort of, uh-huh. you know, how track of myself, something behavioral, because they're, they are one child, they are not siloed. So Uh they are one child or teenager. And so we have to deal with it that way. So a lot of times we look for that overlap and say, if you want to help somebody behaviorally, help them succeed academically, Uh you know, amazing how that confidence changes things for them. Oh, it's, so it reminds me of, so, you know, I, I use, you know, standards-based grading and learning quite a bit in my classroom. And one of the most novel things students in say grade 10 and grade 11 are actually it's so surprising to them just this idea of I'm going to take your best, you know, or most recent evidence of learning and discount the old or, or you know what, I know that because of something that's gone on in your life, I can look at the evidence I've got. And that's enough evidence for, you know, that I'm okay with wherever you are on the proficiency scale. Right. There's a humanity to it. Like we're actually <laughs> they're treating them like people instead of like, you know, them and us. And, you know, we're the great and powerful. So yeah. no, you've got to do everything like everybody else. I'm sorry that you've got crap going on in your life, but you know what? 
it, there's yeah. such a humanity to it, right? And I'll get kids who at the end of a course will ask, you know, why can't all teachers actually, you know, assess in this way? Because it actually makes them feel good. They actually want to take risks. They, you know, I could go on and on. It, um, yeah, I, of our, like, you know, in the, motivating. In the traditional system, when you start off slow or low, low score, failed quiz, whatever, you have to exponentially outperform yourself, right? I always tell people like every 40 is going to need a 60 just to get a 50. So yeah. you have to exponentially outperform yourself. If you have a system in your classroom where you use the more recent evidence, students actually see that they can dig themselves out of the hole, right? Yeah. So it's not yeah. that every every 30 needs a, a 70 to get a 50. If I start as a 30 and I finish as a 60, I'm a 60. And, the, and that's the part where I think people forget, like once once a student knows it, it's irrelevant that they used to not know it. Yeah. And that's what we should be telling people. And I think our struggling learners, those who typically get off to a slower, low start, there are those who need longer to learn. It's very empowering to them to know that when I, when I learn something, I don't have to exponentially outperform myself just to average to a pass, but I but my teacher will use the more recent evidence, which says I now know how to do something. Therefore, it's irrelevant that I used to not know how to do it. And uh -huh. to me, that really, I saw that in my own classroom, you know, 20 years ago, uh, that that for our struggling learners, some of the practices we use are are quite motivating to them because they realize I don't have to, I'm not going to do this epic increase in my ability, and then my mark goes up two percent. Uh -huh. because it doesn't average out enough. And, uh, uh -huh. and so rethinking that does have a behavioral component to it for sure. Uh -huh. It reminds me as well, you know, hearing about when I hear adults say, you know, in the real world, <laughs> I know you love this one, Tom. Don't in get the me. real world, I know. In the real world, that's oh, like, do we understand these kids? You know, have we taken time to understand their backgrounds? Are we only just reading their files and reading the comments and all report cards? Are we actually getting to know them? Are we having that conversation? One of the things I do at the start of the of uh, the year with my seniors. Um, is I'll ask them, what do you expect from school, and what does school expect from you? It's a great icebreaker because yeah. the stuff that comes up, these are kids that are starting getting ready to start. To, they're just, they're driving, they've got jobs, they're in sports, they're in clubs. They've, they, some of them are live in rural areas and they have farms and chores and we come together and brainstorm that. And it's like, I can just feel the energy of the class, Tom. It just changes because it's like, whoa, you really want to know? And at first they're a little guarded, like, okay, she's trying to be sneaky here. You know, what is she trying to trap us into That's, something? Uh, and yeah. the segue to assessment is so beautiful. As I say, well, then why don't we take the pressure off here and let's, you know, re let's <laughs> reassess assessment. Let's take <laughs> a look at that. And let me tell you about the way I'm going to do this, right? And that's the conversations you can also then have with parents, because when parents, you know, if they've got a, a student who might otherwise be drowning because of those first couple of tests and it's almost unrecoverable because of the you know the law of, uh, you know, using the mean to determine an overall grade, they are incredibly pleased by the fact that, you know, with these more progressive assessment, or I shouldn't say progressive, we've got to stop saying that, realistic assessment practices, accurate assessment accurate. practices. Right, it's yeah, accurate. Yeah. It's just, it's more equitable. It's more accurate, right? We tend right. to use the words progressive just because it seems like this new thing, right? It's really not, right? It's really not. So, so I, right. yeah, went went off on a tangent there, but I, but I feel you, right? Like I, I get that with the connection between assessment and behavior. It's, it's, it's yeah. a big one. I, I, they're not siloed, um, but but yeah, they. I I often say to people, assessment is relationship building, you know, because uh -huh. I mean? and how you handle their learning, how you handle assessment, the the atmosphere you create around assessment. Kids will have emotional reactions to being assessed. We just uh -huh. have to make sure that re that reaction is productive. Uh -huh. Like we want, you know, do do a question for teachers to think about: Do your students see assessment as an opportunity to show what they know, to kind of know what's next for them as a learner? Do they see assessment as an opportunity or do they see assessment as something to be feared? Mm -hmm. That's the question. They will have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed. The question is whether or not 
that emotional reaction is going to be productive in terms of learning, or is it going to be counterproductive? And if anxiety is high and stress is high and pressure is high, you'll never get your student's best performance. We know that anxiety interferes with your memory. It interferes with your ability to pay attention and your concentration. So highly anxious students will not perform at their best, no matter how mm-hmm. someone might pontificate about, we got to season these kids. And yeah, don't get me started on the real world because their worlds are real. I know. I mean, the kids live in the real world. Any any adult, I've come to a realization that any adult that says, wait till they get in the real world is the one living in the bubble. Yeah, uh, It's yeah. the one that didn't, that as a, as a young person, that adult likely didn't deal with much adversity. So then they became an adult and life got tough. And now they're like, wait till you get in the real world. Now the pandemic should have put that entire thing to rest. Because I often ask audiences when I work in workshops, I say, tell me what aspect of the pandemic was fake fantasy or make-believe for young people. And the answer is none of it. There were there was it's it was real for them too. So I don't mean to be dismissive or snarky toward adults. And I know what people are meaning when they say, "What do you get in the real world?" It's like, wait till you become an adult. But the insinuation that our kids' worlds aren't real is one of the most disrespectful and dismissive things you can say to a young person. It is, uh-huh. it is absolutely um, completely tone deaf to what the anxiety, the pressure, the racism, the harassment, the bullying. The, the food insecurity, the poverty, like all of those things that young people experience to be completely ignorant of that and naive to it. And again, don't, I'm not throwing shade here, Shannon. I used to hurl that at kids all the time back in the day. Yeah. So I put yeah. me at the top of the list of teachers who used to say, what do you get in the real world? But it's because I grew up in a bubble. I, I never yeah. experienced adversity that way. You know, yeah. I've never, never been poor. You know what I mean? Yeah. I grew up in yeah. a lower yeah. middle class household, but I've never experienced real poverty. Um, you know, my dad worked in a foundry. My mom sold shoes at the Hudson Bay Company. So, I mean, it's not like we were rolling in it, but, but yeah. you know, I we, we did okay. So I lived in a bit of a bubble. So as an adult, I went, whoa, life just got real. Wait till you get in the real world. But a lot of kids are dealing with the real world from the time they're born. Mm-hmm. No, that's... Yes. And, you know, similar to you, I know my dad was, as a, is a retired teacher and we just had the one income f- family. And I, there is that point where we have to pause and really just check our privilege, right? Kind of really think about the background of some of these kids. Some of these kids have, it's so real. It's, it's sad, right? It's yeah. yeah. For sure. So um, what's next for you? Tom Shimmer, you've got, you've written this book. Great. Love the book again, like I told you. And I know you've got your podcast, you're traveling a lot. What's, what's coming up for you? Well, I've got other writing projects I'm working on, Um, working on a couple of books right now. Myself, uh, Matt Townsley and Megan Knight are working on a book that's called This Too Shall Stick. Uh, And it's all about leading change and assessment and grading using uh, John Cotter's model, the uh, Harvard business professor, the eight steps for transforming your organization. So that book is in uh, editing right now, Um, writing a book with Natalie Bartabasso called Rehumanizing Assessment Through Story. Uh, And we're working on that. That manuscript is not finished yet, but we're working on that and uh, a few other projects that are just sort of in the beginning stages. So just constantly learning and writing and and, um, you know, workshops and conferences and just continuing to feed myself professionally. So I'm really excited about all of it and, you know, finding the time to do everything. (laughs) I know, right? But yeah. I do, you know, I love the work and, and, uh, and that makes a big difference. So, um, trying to, you know, and trying to make a difference in the world of education is just what we're all trying to do. So, um, I'm excited about what's, what's ahead and excited about the new book that just came out and, uh, yeah, so just, just excited about all of it. Yeah. I'm a real, I'm a big fan of all of those folks that you just mentioned. And I know listeners can't see my eyes just get big. I'm like, Oh, another book, <laughs> more books. Yay. Um, yeah. yeah. Always, always learning myself. And, and you're, you're just so you're really inspiring. And I can see that you've got such a positive energy, like in terms of that you love to do this. You don't just walk in front of a room and stand in front of a room and just, no. You know, here's all the research, you know, you're really passionate about it. And I think, and vulnerable, like even in this conversation, right, sharing our history, sharing our stories, which I know is like part of the basis of of what you and Natalie are working on, because I've spoken to Natalie in the last couple of weeks. And I think that's, that's really, really important. So I want to end the podcast with what I call elevator pitch. 
Okay. So, okay. So this is what I do for with all of my guests. Tom, are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. So the idea, Tom, is you are on the third floor and someone's going to get on the, on the elevator with you and press six. And Tom, that elevator's not stopping. You've only got three floors to give them some advice. So here's the, the questions. You have three floors to inspire an educator to embrace the messiness of collaborating with other educators on behavior reform. You know, it's like that, that, that an educator comes on the elevator and is like, oh, another staff meeting. And now mm. we're going to have to do some think pair share group work, you know, talking about behavior reform. What would you say to them to nudge them gently in the direction and feel like you can do it? Embrace the I would, messy. I would say two things. I would say okay. first, first of all, I would say none of us have all the answers, but collectively we do. Oh, I love that. And someone in that room is going to need you. They're going to need your input to get better at what they do with kids. Oh, someone's going to need you. Someone in that room needs you. They need your experience. They need your comment. They need your question. They need something is going to come from you that is going to inspire someone else. So your contributions to that meeting are going to have an impact. Ding, we're at the sixth floor. Oh, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> hey, that made me feel good. Someone needs you. I'm going to, I'm totally stealing that. Absolutely. Next staff oh. meeting, right? Because I'm going to have the assessment lead of my school next year with the yeah. new reporting order. So someone well, needs you. I love it. Love that. Someone in that room is going to need your experience. Fill in the blank, right? Someone in the room is going to need your experience. Someone in the room needs your question. You're going to ask a question about something that's going to trigger something in their head. And they're going to go, oh, right. That's a very good question. So your contributions are going to have a ripple effect throughout the meeting. So mm -hmm. don't think that you're just there to receive. You're there to give. Yeah. No, I love that. Oh, thank you for keeping me on the path to on this journey of assessment learning, Tom. So great to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending some time with me. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks. You. Thanks for the invite, Shannon. Uh, always a pleasure and uh, look forward to next time if there is one. I'm honored to have produced this and all episodes of the Embrace the Messy podcast with Shannon Schinkel on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Clay Lake Tanae First Nation. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and share it with a colleague or friend. Doing so will help others find the podcast. Know someone who embraces the messy and would make a great guest on the pod? Email me at embracethemessypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.